mortals, and welcome back. Sorry for us missing a couple weeks, if anybody noticed. Uh, Darby and I got particularly busy, but we are back on schedule and happy to do another fun episode. Today, we'll be digging into some kinky history. I'm Miss Charlie, and this is the Babes of Valhalla. Content may not be suitable if you are underage, closed-minded, or immature. We discuss topics that are graphic and sexual in nature. Today, I'm going to be doing a little history episode, and I was originally going to do this by myself, but I thought it would be much more fun to do it with somebody else. So I'm inviting somebody that I've wanted to have on my podcast for a very long time, Um, and so I'm very happy to finally have you on. It's my father. Yay! Yay. Yay, thank you. Thank you for joining oh, me. Oh, Charlie, thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, my father said his his uh, stage name for the episode can be Bunny. So <laughs> <laughs> welcome Bunny to the stage. <laughs> uh, good to be here, Charlie. Yes. Good to yes. be present. Thank you, Dad. So... The reason I wanted to have you on this episode um, in particular is because it's a fetish history episode and I don't know, I just feel like we talk a lot about all kinds of crazy kooky things. We have a very open dialogue in our daddy-daughter relationship and we, uh, I think part of what's made it so exciting is that there's not a lot that's off the table as far as things that we can talk about. Whether you agree with it or understand it, there's or always like this open... It. Yeah, or understand it at all or just think it's completely crazy. There's always like an openness to talk about it. Even yeah. if your opinion is those people sound crazy, let's talk about it. Because and I think I get... Yes, I think a lot of my interest in people comes from you and a lot of my um like tendencies to want to people watch and just like revel in the bizarreness of humanity comes from you so i think mine just went in a little bit more of a saucy direction than maybe (laughs) yours did but uh but we always have really good conversations so i thought you would be a really fun person to discuss our little history lesson with today. Yay, yay. Educate me, Charlie. Today we're going to be talking about the largest street fair in California and the world's biggest kink fair. Um, Have you ever heard of the Folsom Street Fair? I know. No. Oh, oh. But yes. Not the Folsom Street Fair. So, Folsom Street is a street um, in an area of San Francisco that's referred to as Soma or South of Market. And um, every year, once a year, uh, 16 blocks are 
blocked off and the whole street is turned into an outdoor kink uh, uh, convention, more or less. There's all different types of things from like dancing to live performances. There's all these bunch of different types of vendors and also active like play areas. And there's some there's some sections that are like closed off that are like a little bit more adult. But to say that you're not gonna see adult content just walking around the street is you know, you see everything. Nudity, kink, like active like people being flogged, spit on, being walked like a dog, you know, the whole nine yards is just going on right in front of you. And uh, I went a couple years ago. Yeah, I do remember. I remember when you said you went. Yeah, and um, as you can imagine, the people watching was top notch. It was wonderful. Everybody is just like living their fantasy. Some people are wearing like dog masks, you know, like the little puppy play masks. Some people are carrying other people around on leashes. Some people are being flogged. And there's probably like 5 million gay men shirtless with like leather straps on, you know, like that classic. I'll show you some photos so this you'll is, know what this I'm talking burning about. Burning Man on steroids. Yeah, Burning Man on steroids, but we're... Burning Man is not really like focused on sex. This is focused on sex. It's completely clothing optional. I don't know if that's like an official part of the event is that they decided it's clothing optional, but it's, I've just noticed in San Francisco in general, a lot of things are clothing optional, whether it's uh, a guy walking down the street wearing tennis shoes and that's it. Serious? Yeah, I saw a guy, yeah, just like driving down the street. There was a guy in just tennis shoes um, and a backpack, and that was it. Wow. Okay. So, on full Yeah. On, on, uh, around that area. No. Is that in in the Castro? No, it's not in the Castro. It's a different area. It's not in a gay area. Well, it is in a gay area. Uh, there is a huge population of, like, queer community in the Folsom, south of Market area. Um, there's also a giant, like, giant, uh, leather pride flag that is always being flown in the area. Which, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but... No. It's huge. This flag is huge and it towers up over the freeway and it has blue, black, white like stripes on it. And then up in the corner, there's a like a really vibrant red heart. Mm-hmm. And that is like the leather flag. And it is flying every day in that district of San Francisco. Okay. Which is very in interesting. the Folsom district? In the Folsom South of Market District. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Not in the Castro. This Folsom Parade is three days? It's it's just one day. It's one day. It's not a parade. It's a street fair. Oh, it's it's a fair. It's just a street fair. Yeah. Let me see if I can share my screen with you. And are there, like, are, are you out? getting spankings and stuff at this fair is it 
is it that kind of scene that's going on that uh, there are booths and you can yeah yes stop and get a little spanking or or move on yes so when you're walking down the street at Folsom Street Fair you could easily walk by a custom dildo booth that has everything from animal style dildos to maybe like some mythical creature dildos uh maybe some you know custom requests that you can get as well maybe the next booth is uh you know an organization that's for the queer community that they're like if you'd like to sign up and get more information about this organization supporting the community the booth next to that there might be a live a session going on where you can walk by and see somebody tied up to a St. Andrew's cross, which is the, which is the big X, you know, and so your hands and your feet can get tied up at the top and bottom and you can watch somebody get flogged live. You can even stand in line so you can be flogged next. Um, Please don't do that one. Okay. I don't Oh, they're professionals. They know what they're doing. They know what yeah, they're doing. And there's different people who like different levels. They're not going to take a newbie and go 100%. They're going to choose something that's very soft and sensual. And when they hit you, it doesn't hurt because it's like a really soft leather. It's more of like a, a sensual experience. Now, if you want it to get more intense, you can ask for it and they can up the level of intensity. But yeah. That their that's their job is that like a lot of the Folsom Street Fair is uh it's obviously like a display of kink but it's also about education. It's about bringing it out of the clubs and the dungeons and the small personal spaces and out into the public so that anyone can engage with it and it doesn't feel like it's like cut off from like you know your your life and your experience you can see what it's about you can see the people that are doing it and then you know you can leave it and then you don't have to see it for another year if you don't want to you, does it feel like there are many people that are new to it that are actually going to explore and see for the first time or is it just a big festival of people who are already into kink and i think it's a really half and half honestly like i think there's a lot of people there who are going for the very first time um, to kind of see what it is. I mean, it's definitely a spectacle because you'll see everything out right. in the open. Like you can walk by a puppy playpen where it's a whole bunch of adults dressed up as dogs and you can go pet them and give them treats, you know? And so like when other than that, could, would you really have the experience if that's not something that you're interested in? But you can engage in like a very um, passive way. Yeah. Or a very active way. Right. I mean, the people I think who are more regular, uh, like kink lifestyle people, you can definitely tell because of what they're wearing and what they're doing. And they're definitely putting their kink on display. They're like showing it off versus somebody who's maybe wearing something a little bit more mild or maybe maybe this is their one opportunity to really try something out and wear something they would never wear. So your experience in all of these shows that you've done, all these uh, interviews that you've done, um, I assume you just have like people's 
people's um, connection to their king, people's drive from their king, people's obsession with their kink uh, mm -hmm. would really vary, right? As to where some, it could be just kind of a passing fun exploratory kink and some completely very, very obsessive, like, you know, maybe not that healthy for your life. It becomes so obsessive. You become so obsessed over it um, because it's one thing to go like play as a dog, sometimes and it's a different one if you really wanted to like you know be this dog like all the time that would be uh that could well, be complicated on your life well yeah i mean of course it's gonna be difficult with anything right with any obsession with any yeah. um there's always the times that it's going to become uh like all consuming and that's when it's dangerous. So it doesn't really matter what it is. Like, no matter what it is, like... If a kink is all-consuming, then then it's it's an issue. And it's something that you have to figure out, like, in your own life, like, how you're going to deal with it. In a way that you still feel like whatever it's feeding you is still being fed, but it's not conflicting with your life. And I think you can do that with anything. Like, people who get obsessed with video games because they're an escape... There's some people who can't do anything but play video games and they're still going to work and they're still living their life, but maybe they're letting their interpersonal you know, relationships media fail because... Social would be the same, right? Yeah. Social media, getting uh, addicted to beer. Totally. And, and I think if you find people who are like interested in the same things that you're interested in and there's kind of like... Um, I don't know, a code of conduct or like a, 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 like a schedule. Like, let's say you find other people who like to dress up like dogs and you're like, hey, you know what? We're all going to meet Wednesday and we're going to do puppy play. And then we'll get out of puppy play and I'll have cocktails and talk about our week and then go home. You know, then you're like, you're working it into your life as like a social thing. And it's fitting that need that you need that's giving you the socialization it's giving you your like you know sexual kick it's doing like all these different things for you where it's maybe filling in some part of you you don't feel like you get in your normal day-to-day -day interaction and you're still creating a schedule around it and um I guess a huge part of Folsom is to kind of put that on display and I think like with sex work a lot of things can feel very intimidating until it's out in the open. And Folsom takes place in the middle of the day. You know, it's right. like it's like not a dark seedy corner. It's like bright lights. I mean, there's definitely nudity. You'll definitely see like people, you know, getting like blowjobs in a corner somewhere are because there, Are there a lot of sex workers at Folsom? Yes. Yes. Oh. And how, how are they kind of doing their thing? How are they on display besides I mean, besides spanking not... someone? Yeah, I don't think it's explicit that they're sex workers. Right. Like, I think it's just an opportunity for them to explore sexuality uh, publicly in a different space. Like, I knew sex workers that would go there and they would do performances and it, they would do kink performances. Yeah. Or, or they would just volunteer at a booth. You know, 
Just step on some guy's face, maybe. Yeah, step on some guy's face if that's what they're interested in. You know, and it depends on what kind of sex work they're in. If you're a dominatrix, you know. Right. Folsom is set up for you perfectly. You can run your own booth. And you can you can say what what your services are, and if people want to come over and try it out, then they can. And you would obviously, because you know the environment, you're going to do a very, maybe a very light version of it, because you know there's a lot of first timers who are just dipping their toe in, unless somebody says to you, "I'm a very experienced submissive. I'm a very experienced, you know, player in this world. Like I would like." to go a little bit more intense. Right. You know. Yeah. So. How many people do you think it draws? Uh, you know, I think, let me see. I had the numbers. It says about 100,000 people go to the Folsom Street Fair. <laughs> yeah. And it's a one-day event. That's it's incredible. Sunday. And it actually just happened last weekend. And I was going to try to make it, but... Um, That's but, incredible. It's yeah. a lot of curious, uh, curious people. It's a lot of curious people. Okay, so I can't screen share with you, which is unfortunate because there's like something that it won't let me do. So I would like for you instead to just pull up one of your browsers, type in the Folsom Street Fair, and maybe describe one of the pictures that you find particularly interesting. I just thought of a good poem for a t-shirt. All right, let's hear it. Folsom is not wholesome. <laughs> that is very good. How about that? This is, that, is, that is really great. <laughs> right? That would be a winner. That is why you're on the, on the show. On t-shirt. Oh, boy. Here we go. Okay. So now oh, you get a little right. insight. Well, there we go. Lots of leather at Folsom Fair. Mm-hmm. Yes, there is. Leather. A lot of leather. A lot of leather pouches. Pouches? Uh, lot, lot, well, uh, underpants. Or <laughs> what underpants. are they called? G-strings. G-strings. And do you see how a lot of guys have those, like, leather harnesses on? Those are very popular. Oh, my God. That's awesome. Wow, some crazy. These must be the, what are they, the, the furries? But they're definitely, they're leather furries. Yeah, that's like they're, the puppy they're, play they're stuff, animals, right? They're dogs? They're all, they're animals in leather. Oh, I don't know. I mean, there's always different types. I mean, the most popular type of that kind of thing is uh, ponies and puppies. So you might see some ponies. Yeah, ponies are pretty, it's a pretty popular one. Um, and a reindeer. Yeah, I saw the reindeer. I don't I don't know what that is, but someone's just trying something else out. I would say that it's uh, the pony play and puppy player more mainstream as far as that kind of play goes, I guess. Yeah, so interesting. All right, well, it's heavy duty like um yeah kind of there there seems to be a lot of kind of traditional gay leather going on mm -hmm. with your shoulder straps and body straps and yeah all that and the chains and and the uh, police hats and 
Yes. Anyone that's standing out to you at all? And is that like, would that be considered like an S&M type of look, I guess? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it could be in the, yeah, in the BD, which is bondage. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This guy's getting, he's tied up. He's got a rope through his mouth and around his neck and his arms and are all tied. And he's getting his little boobies slapped. <laughs> and he's Gundam's little booby slapped. Oh, yeah. and here some guy. Yeah, well, I don't know. He could have his finger up his buddy's butt. I'm not sure. It kind of looks like it, but maybe not. Um, yeah, wow. Super, super, super colorful. Yes. So you could imagine uh, walking down the street. One of the funniest things that happened to me when I was at the Folsom Street Fair walking around was uh, like an older woman just trying to get into her apartment building and the entrance uh. happened to be on the Folsom Street, like on Folsom. And so she had to go through the fair. She's like this, you know, 70, 80 year old woman, like carrying all these bags, um, trying to like get through the fair just to get into her like apartment building. Right. And I was like, oh, man. I can only imagine her perception of like what the fuck is going on right now. But um, any thoughts of like maybe how it's perceived in the community or in the, by the city? Any thoughts on this at all? If yeah, I hadn't I mean, told you anything about it. But that woman that you just described, clearly she must have some interest or patience or support or something of that nature to stay there right to to choose could live anywhere in the world and she knows that this happens there yeah you know every year if not more than once a year and it's it's very predominantly you know a that area of you know the city thing and yeah. uh, she has people like who I just sent you walking yes. up and down. So yeah, I'm, I'm thinking. Uh, so that actually, the photo you just sent me, those yeah. are the sisters of perpetual indulgence. They wow. are in a inner, I think maybe international, but I know for sure they are like um, a national group of of uh i mean it's men but also women can be in it too but it, it's kind of this like elaborate drag queen nun and oh, their, it's their an, costumes are phenomenal it's a non-profit organization yeah wow so the, for, the, for these, what what is what is their focus they raise money for all different types of like events all different types of things they do a lot of things within like the lgbtq community but a lot of times they will show up to different events as kind of like the queer org representative right yeah and uh they they run a bunch of different types of events all all over the country each one of their makeups is like different and unique but they all kind of have this nun-esque looking hat and uh yeah they all have the, uh, 
at least all of these have the white face thing going that's, on. That's that's the thing. That's how you can tell it's a sister of perpetual indulgence. Right, right. okay. Let's see. I don't know off the top of my head a lot about... Well, definitely see predominantly uh, male gay. Yes, I mean, it is definitely focused, like I said, like LGBT. It's like focused on like the queer community. So it says the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence... Uh, is a charity, protest, and street performance organization that uses ja uh, drag and religious imagery to call attention to sexual intolerance and satirizes issues of gender and morality. Uh, but they, like, God. run all different types of events, like, all over the country. Right. Awesome. Let's and, they're go. like, to be a sister, you have to have, like, you have to donate and, like, a certain amount of your time and like volunteer and it's not just like you wear the makeup it's like you have to commit to a, like a lot of like a volunteer work yeah because you were like i wonder if they started in san francisco and i just looked it up and they did they yeah did. cool yeah of course they did i must say i see very very few women in these photos it's a lot of gay men it's, there are women like, but it's a lot it's like of gay men 98 percent gay men that is true but there's a lot you know, of gay men i mean maybe that's not but you would think this would be a pretty good representation oh man this poor dude is got his little jock support leather thing and they're putting um uh um clothing clip on yeah. his wee wee yeah that's clearly something that's, like, <laughs> that's, that's clearly a kink yeah. that just oh that, that doesn't look good so oh, that, oh, that might that might fall under the category of cock ball torture owie yeah yeah. All right, all right. Stop looking at pictures now. I'm gonna give you a little history, okay? Okay. So, yeah. um, as as you kind of said before, the people who live in the neighborhood, they're obviously like understand that this thing is happening. They're getting something out of it. I'm gonna kind of go into a little bit of the history of the Folsom Street Fair. Now, there is a lot of history, and in researching this. I realize that there's a lot that I'm not going to be able to cover because it goes pretty in depth with um, what was happening in the city over the course of like the last 60 years. So this is just a very brief skimming off the top history of the Folsom Street Fair and where it came from and what it is today. So okay. Charlie, are thank you, you ready? You're yeah. welcome, Bunny. May I call you? <laughs> Bun bun. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Bun so, bun. bun bun. We are going to start in San Francisco in the 1950s. So, Soma. No way. Yes. No. Way. Not the fair. It's, just wait. Okay. Just wait. Just wait. No, we have I'm to. So we have to set it up. You have. We okay. have to set it up. All right. Okay. So in the 1950s, Soma, which is south of Market, so Market Street is a sit or is a street that runs through San Francisco, and there's a little area. It's kind of in like the how do I describe where it would be? 
It's uh, in the like central, more uh, eastern section of San Francisco is okay. Soma. So Soma, south of Market, is a little area. And in the 1950s, it was like a center for the workforce. So a lot of people who are coming in, doing a lot of like the dirty work, they needed somewhere cheap to live while they were doing all this. This is all like very, you know, entry level jobs. All the people who are getting, uh, making the city move essentially, or living in Soma. Now, SROs are, are single room occupancies. And a single room occupancy is when they would build up essentially almost like a hotel or even an apartment complex, but each room uh, is just a bedroom. And you're paying for just a bedroom. So it's like, right. it's like, it's more like living in a hotel where you walk into the room, you have a little bed, maybe you have a bathroom adjoined, or sometimes there would just be a bathroom for the floor. And um, it was really cheap, and it was usually the only thing these workers could afford is to live in these single-room occupancies. So you could pack a whole bunch of people into these homes, and there's still single-room occupancies in San Francisco today, um, in like still the areas that are the very few areas that have been set aside for like you know the lower class that are still single room occupancies because they're the only things that are cheap enough for anybody to afford and this issue's been going goes back like a long time so even back in the 1950s it was still the same issue there wasn't really anywhere for the workers of the city to live and so the only place they could go was to these SROs in Soma now because most of these SROs didn't have like any areas to hang out, they were very small bedrooms. Most of them didn't even have like a kitchen area or anything. A lot of the people who lived in these areas would socialize on the streets. So a community started building, a pretty strong community started building of people and walking around, talking, going to all these little restaurants around and um, like sharing their ideas on right. like the, the, the changes that needed to happen in the city and in this area so that they could continue to live there and thrive. So as like the 1950s moved into the 60s, San Francisco decided that they wanted to start developing this area. Just like with most areas of San Francisco, they saw it as like prime real estate that was being occupied by like lower class, they thought if we could set like tear down all these, uh, you know, single room occupancies, we could build up much more expensive housing and, you know, up the whole neighborhood. And um, they started shutting off people's water and like stopped doing trash collection as a way to try and force people out of the area because they couldn't just take it away from them. And most people were unwilling to move. But because the community had spent so much time together, like they were actually much more informed than the city realized. There was a lot of old retired activists who were like informing the people that lived there, like how to stand up, how to like file lawsuits, how to protect their rights. And so the city went in initially thinking that they could just like go in and like 
kick all these people out. And instead, because all of them were spending pretty much all day when they weren't working with each other, they were they had this strong network to rely on each other. And even though the uh, redevelopment Our continued, people. yeah, exactly. The redevelopment did not stop. It continued, but it really got slowed down because every time they tried to make an advancement, there would be these people filing lawsuits and making things difficult and filing complaints. And it, it took a lot longer than they thought to even start that development. Right. You allow these people to to talk, communicate, collaborate. Yes. And that's yes. a powerful thing, right? It is a powerful thing. Yeah. And there was actually and They a thought couple... they could just bully him out and that didn't work. It, it really didn't. And actually, um, so there was a couple retired activists, particularly two. There was one named Pete Mendelssohn and one named George Wolf. And they were both retired activists back from like years you know when they were younger and doing like a bunch of stuff with unions and um they really led a lot of the protests because the people that were being displaced especially the elderly didn't really have a support system to place them in a new home and they were able to um to like file a lot of complaints about this and that was like a huge part of it was these two guys in you know association with everybody else who was uh helping them but they really pushed uh this this movement to start uh it's called todd co which is a non-profit organization um that was like tenants and owners develop wait tenants and owners development corporation i might have said that wrong but they started like this organization came out of it or this corporation came out of it. It's a nonprofit corporation that was kind of aimed at helping people um, in this area uh, get make sure they weren't just being completely displaced. So, right. The great thing that came out of this was a lot of organizing, a lot of nonprofits, and a lot of uh, people who put things in place to make sure this didn't happen. And this is important because Todco. We're going to set that little bit of information aside for now, and we're going to look at something else. So we're now moving into the 1960s. Now, in 1964, Life magazine had an article uh, called Homosexuals in America, and it was really highlighting a bunch of different communities and people all over the United States. And they did part of their article on a bar in the south of market called the toolbox which was like a leather bar and so it started to really draw attention to this community that was forming in san francisco and especially in the south of market area of san francisco and so after that came out a lot of people started coming to san francisco to experience that culture and it became much more of a hub for leather bars so it, so it kind of turned into the a leather dump. coming out of i think the leather just came out of the fact that there was already like a kink community within san francisco i mean but where did leather and kink come from like why why leather like how how and why leather where did that come from 
like oh, these leather man. chest leather chest bands and leather face masks and why why leather what makes that part of kink I don't know. <laughs> I I don't like have this. A like a leather bar. Like why? why yeah. Why not? Oh, uh, I feel like there's you know, so chiffon. much written Bonhamble. on this. There's like a lot associated with like the smell of leather, the ritual of leather. There's like cleaning involved. There's like the person who wears the leather can have somebody else clean their leather. And it's like a... A power dynamic there's like a lot like revolving around like the leather community and like a long history of of that slowly being built and changing over time right now um i feel like this interview should happen tomorrow so i can do a whole another research on where the leather subculture comes from. All right, this article uh, says that's, that's it's really I've never really thought about that until now, and that's kind of fascinating. Cool. Such a part of the culture. It's like where it's a huge why? part. And you just okay. saying, oh, it was a leather bar. That's where the leather bar started. Well, why? 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 That's no, a maybe, great question. Maybe, maybe from horses and and putting leather on you know strapping horses in and leather belts and it just came out of like oh you got a leather belt and well i'm gonna take this belt and i'm gonna tie your feet together it's like oh okay i, I found an article okay. are you ready yeah okay so it says that generally assumed that leather culture got its start in the 1940s as an offshoot of post-World War II motorcycle clubs that began popping up around the same time. Gay men flocked in droves to large cities following the blue discharges from the army. It led to a large group of homosexuals in cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Chicago. So it looks like leather came out of a lot of gay men coming out of the war and apparently joining like like motorcycle clubs and the connection between kind of like motorcycle culture and gay men so yeah okay i guess i guess you could see the uh the leather motorcycle jackets being kind of a starting point and then the accent of that, like starting to become leather straps and right, just yeah. a stylish, kind of a stylish accent to uh, to a full-on motorcycle leather ch chaps or jacket. Mm -hmm. or, actually, chaps would be a chaps. good starting point too, right? There's a lot of leather chaps, and it's still it's that's a huge thing, leather chaps. And right. if you think about the even the old-fashioned right. motorcycle hats. That's right. huge. Still today as like so an aesthetic. Like, yeah, you take the chaps and they have straps, leather straps on the chaps. And those would have been first. So it's natural to go, oh, the strap. I'm going to now strap my chest. Fascinating, right? Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Okay. I'm trying to just read about this really quickly, but... There's so much here. And I know there's like, there's a lot of literature 
written about leather history and leather culture because it's such a huge part of like the kink community and the queer community. I feel like that's a whole nother rabbit hole that I have not looked into. Um, oh, here's a little thing. The first leather bar came in 1958. Business partner and lifetime partners, uh, Chuck and Dom, Renslow and Orhudos, uh, would later go to found the International Mr. Leather, a leather competition in Chicago, and the Chicago White Partner Party. Um, Dom, who was also known by the nom de plume Etienne, was another homoerotic artist who, all along with George Quintance, Quintance, Quintance. Uh, inspired Tom of Finland's work. Do you know Tom of Finland? Mm -hmm. He's like, a, I know him. While I'm slaughtering all these other people's names because I'm reading it for the first time <laughs> while we're recording. Tom of Finland is like a very, very, very popular kink illustrator and artist who does a lot of stuff about gay men in leather with bulges touching each other like it's like a very popular style of art right yeah which i mean and art right these like art imitates culture and then culture imitates art so it's like the more you make something that's erotic that somebody can then buy and purchase and look at then their fantasies evolve around that thing that they're looking at and then they imitate that back in their life to like reach the fantasy that they're looking at which then influences how people make art right right that little cycle um, another leather bar opened up in San Francisco's famous Folsom Street called The Stud, which I believe is still around today. Um, yeah, so that I guess that's kind of where gay men and leather and kink all come together. And I know that, like, there's been, like, a lot of leather communities who have been around, like, as leather communities for, like, quite a long time. Like, since the 50s or 60s. Like, since this all started, like, these leather men's organizations have been around and thriving and, like, creating community and creating events. Yeah, so, that's, that's, that's pretty cool because, I don't know, I've just forever just seen it as you know, kind of a standard gay fashion statement, but it is cool yeah. to be able to track it back, whatever, into the 50s, into the 60s and see, kind of understand where it came from and how it's really so deep into the culture. Mm -hmm. in, and in being history. out and being yeah. out as a gay man, right? right. Uh, in the US, which is only a more recent thing as well. And yeah. that kind of evolved as the culture evolved as like a more proud and uh, visible community. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is that natural gay fashion statement that says, maybe I'm a policeman <laughs> and I'm also gay. And here's, yeah. here's kind of how you can tell this is our own personal kind of accessory or personal fashion statement that uh right i'm mm -hmm. i'm and and it, it also is interesting too because it's uh 
it is a it's kind of a bold counter balance to like the drag yeah right? it's a very it's, yeah because it's very manly manly you know the these guys who strut that are like freaking buff not always but but you know that's but that's like the part they're highlighting even if they don't yeah. have like the must like right. the largest muscles like the way that they're yeah. wearing their clothes is to highlight yeah, their the shoulders manly, their back manly. yes the manly yeah. aspects it's not supposed to be feminizing them it's supposed to be right. masculine like making their body more masculine right yeah that's yeah. fascinating so yeah so this scene continued to grow and especially in san francisco is trying to become um a hub and a destination for leather communities um yeah. wonder why san diego like or san francisco i wonder wonder what it was about san francisco that that has made it historically this this open safe space for yeah artists. you know i I don't know. I, I mean, I could make a lot of speculations now. I mean, like, I feel like this conversation could be like a whole like dissertation paper. Like we've definitely gone really deep into it, which is great. I mean, it reali I realized like I thought I'd done some research and the more we're talking, the more I'm like, damn, I could have done so much more research. I really could have, you well, know, like yeah, we're covering it. We're covering a lot, though. Yeah. And I don't I don't have in-depth knowledge of all these things, but um. I mean, I definitely think that the West in general, you know, had a very different feeling. It, there was definitely like a lawlessness to the West. And um, I know that like with San Francisco, like I know that there was like the Burberry Coast, which was like the red light district, you know, so I know that there was like a lot of areas that were set up for more like prostitution and that there was more like i don't know i mean maybe los angeles has that too though you know maybe la also has that but it's a huge LA, port city LA didn't, doesn't have well it certainly currently doesn't maybe it did but it it but yeah i mean in in all of our time there it, it didn't ever have i mean it has west hollywood but it but it doesn't have kind of that same massive kind of open door you know yeah just acceptance scene thing there um yeah yeah that's that's yeah really i don't know i mean that, that, that would be interesting to explore another time yeah no but i do know that there was like i mean a lot of brothels and sex work yeah, and that stuff makes sense. that that yeah. was happening in in san francisco more in like the um the tenderloin area which is why it was called the tenderloin it was like um, a reference to being able to pay off cops to look out the other way. So it was like a lot of gambling and prostitution and like, yeah, the the Burberry Coast was like the one of the areas um, where like a lot of that kind of stuff took place as well. And um, yeah, because you would think like a vibrant history of like sex work within the city. I mean, still to this day, it has quite a big um like sex work community right because when that when the when the um when that popular population of it'd be interesting to know when the population of of gays like really when there was a 
just kind of a huge influx, right? Was that in the, mm. like, like you were saying from what you just read that after mm. World War II and, and you have, you know, all these, um, uh, you know, troops that were coming out and they didn't mm-hmm. really have a place to go and they, you know, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. And they made their way like, okay, West, what yes. was going on? You know, what was going on that they made their way out to like west to san francisco you know was it yeah maybe that's just it it was more just just more open than lawless and less suburban americana middle america yeah Um, a lot of people end up migrating to port cities for that reason because that is where it's like a cultural hub and so for sure. More diversity, exactly. Yeah. And so you have more connection with the world, more connection yeah. with a lot of other like types of people. And so I think a lot of times... Um, more exploratory, a little more edgy, yeah. a little more... Yeah, yeah. and you're also going to yeah. be getting like, you know, things that are coming from other countries are going to hit coastal cities first, right? You're going to get these new experiences before the rest of the country does. And so I could see this idea of also the West, if you're going to be in the West, you know, you're going to go to the, one of the coastal cities because that's kind of like where you're going to go. If you're going to be in the West at all and you're looking for something new and different now, why San Francisco has more of that culture. I don't know. I don't know, but it did have a leather bar and It got published and it started just creating like a um like a community around it. It became known that look, we're we've got a home and it's out west. Mm-hmm. You know. And so mm-hmm. at some point there was probably just such a crazy influx because right, that's when that started to build up as you know. Yes. And I will get to something that happened in the 80s that was a huge huge thing that actually started connecting the dots okay so we're gonna fast forward a little bit charlie Um, you're doing a great job thank you bunny uh i really appreciate that (laughs) i feel like we'll we'll have to cut out like half of this interview just because we're just we're just shooting the shit which is lovely mini series it could be a miniseries. Okay, so in 1979, we have two people come together. Kathleen Connell and Michael Valerio were two people working for that organization we were talking about earlier, Toddco. That was made because it was worried about the tenants and the elderly and displacement, right? And making sure that people had a voice. So there's these two people, they're both activists, and... Um, Michael was hired by Toddco to develop low-income housing, and Kathleen was working up on a project focused on, like, food delivery. So both of them kind of had, like, very different focuses that they were doing. It was both focused uh, in the Soma area, in the South of Market area, and um, they helped uh, create the South of Market reliance or alliance which was focused on affordable housing community controlled economic development viable infrastructure and this one i think is so cool it's uh renovating the only elementary school in soma so 
a huge part of barring people from creating a community is putting things like schools and food and and resources outside of the community. So they're trying to renovate the only elementary school that existed there and try to make this like a viable place for people to live and really stand up for the working class that was still trying to make it in this area that uh, developers were still trying to take from them. And I, I was watching this this speech by this woman who who went through the history and of of Soma, and you just watch so many buildings just get torn down, torn down, torn down. So much housing, you know, to get converted into something else. And so they were trying to think like, well, what can we do to like raise money for this area? And they thought, well, why don't we have a street fair? Like there's a lot of other places in San Francisco that have a street fair that, uh, you know, can help highlight local businesses and bring together like the community and really show the, um, the outside world that Soma is not just like a barren landscape meant for redevelopment, but actually has like a thriving community here. And it's a very, very diverse community. You have a lot of people that are gay you have a lot of people that are immigrants you have a lot of people that are like working class but I think a lot of times it was overlooked as like a community and just kind of seen as kind of like the outskirts of town and so they said you know they essentially wanted to do a craft market so that they could bring the community together and highlight businesses and like that that existed there uh-huh. Folsom Street Fair was originally like any other street fair. It had pottery vendors, it had crafts, it had, you know, little restaurant pop-ups. Very, very normal. They're trying to support local businesses, bring together the eclectic groups of Soma and show the importance of keeping this vibrant community alive and going. And it was really important to show everybody outside who kind of viewed it as like a blighted community that was very active and thriving and that it was trying to get like torn down. So up until like in 1984, it was just a normal street fair. And now, because of the community that existed there, you started seeing leather show up over time. But it was the actual attendants, not the booths, that were sporting the leather. So the attendants started coming. Well, the attendants were a lot of gay men and gay women and queer people. And they were bringing this like leather culture with them when they were going to the fair. And so while the booths stayed the same, you saw the culture slowly, slowly start to shift of who was showing up. Now, the big change in the Folsom Street Fair was when um, they decided to line a couple things up together that kind of created this like uh, leather pride week. Now, there was a magazine called Drummer, which was like a leather gay magazine. And they had a like leather, like drummer competition where different men would, you know, come in their leather gear and, you know, compete for Mr. Leather. And uh, it was happening in San Francisco. But it was just like one little event by itself. 
And the people who ran the event said, well, why don't we put it next to another event so we can kind of create like a little set of events. You know, we're probably going to have a better turnout from people from out of town. If we try to stack things together, you know. If there's like, oh, well, we have this uh, this like leather event and competition right next to like the fair, like the next day, it's creating more of like a set of events for our participants to come check out. And we can kind of bill it together. So first thing that happened is Drummer moved their event to the same week as Folsom. And Folsom was on the autumnal equinox. And the second thing that happened is they got uh, another fetish event to do the same thing. So these fetish events were at different times of the year and they said, well, why don't we stack it? We'll have like Wednesday to Friday be our leather competition. Then you at, can do this at like- At the Folsom Fair. At, no, 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 separate. Okay. No, no, separate. So like, we're gonna just have our event. Then why don't you move your fetish event to the day after our leather event is over and it will all culminate with just this arts and crafts fair. But we're giving our participants like an array of things to do. It's like if you showed up for like a vacation and they gave you a pamphlet of everything that was going on that weekend that you could go check out. But because of this, they pretty much turned the whole week of the Folsom Street Fair into this leather pride week. So it was drawing in crowds from all over the country that were coming there to celebrate leather and kink and fetishes because of other events that were next to the Folsom Street Fair. Like next to, not physically next to, but like next to as far as like time-wise goes. Like you had one event on Monday, one event on Tuesday, one event, and then finally at the end of the week on Sunday, you had the Folsom Street Fair. And over time, the marketing just started to shift because all of these people were coming from all over and it was driving the uh, who was showing up to the fair and all of a sudden you just have all this kink, all this leather um, and and slowly the, the fair took on that identity <laughs> to match, right? right? right. And um, yeah, and it, and it has... And the Sense. area was clearly expanding it as well. Yeah, yeah, so that's the fair. The fair still is raising money and awareness to support the community and to help build out and keep Soma for the people who are living there currently. And while it, like, from the outside, looks like this crazy display of like you know, hedonism, it's actually just all the crazy weirdos coming out of the walls to say like, no, we're, we're the people that exist here and we're going to fight for it, even if that means that we're asking you 20 bucks so that we can whip you. Like, that's our way of like fighting for this space, you know, and so the old lady who's walking through the Folsom Street Fair to get to her apartment, her apartment is there in part because of like the work that the it's fair has done. It. Yeah, because they've been fighting for it actively. Right. Yeah. I think there's a, a, a lesson to be learned. And mm -hmm. that is that it's only a matter of time before the whole world becomes gay. Um, <laughs> That's what we're taking out of this. And and becomes, uh, you know, one big fulsome bear. It just, this clearly shows how it's just time. 
little by little yeah. by little. And yeah. uh, the whole world will become a fulsome fair. Yeah. Well, I did think it was interesting. Um, the woman who was doing, I watched this like presentation from the Folsom Street Fair like uh, a couple years ago. She was doing a presentation for like the Leatherman Society or something. And right. she was showing slides and she did a whole history presentation. Hers was like two hours long. Although at this point, ours is, you know, probably almost two hours long. But hers was just straight information. Um and she was showing the posters for the count, like for the event every year. She showed the first year, very normal looking poster. Second year, you know, like very like, you know, this, this came out of like the early 80s and it looked like an early 80s poster of like little fun characters holding hands. It took all the way till 1996 for the poster to have anything kinky on it. Right. And that was the first time it had kind of like this guy in like the hat in the leather hat and then after that the next year it was a pig in like leather bondage because like you know <laughs> it had gone then be dirty pigs yeah they're going full no full bore on it yeah all puns intended <laughs> so it was just crazy because for a really long time it was still kind of sticking to this this idea and it took quite a long time before they finally were like, you know what, like this is the community that's here. This is the community that's um, showing up. Like we right. might as well, um, you know, cater to that. And it's still yeah. it's still doing the same that's, thing. That's it's still exposing how, the community that exists there. Is it the biggest fair in San Francisco? I mean, 100,000 people. So here's the thing that's crazy. I said this at the beginning, but maybe you didn't hear it. It's yeah, the like... largest fair in California. Uh, right. It's the largest fair in California, and it's the largest BDM festival in the world. Right. Fascinating to me that that it shows that the the level of support for that community, right? That that it's it's not a mistake that the traditional fair fell to the side and the support for this rose above it and expanded to a hundred thousand people right yeah. which is just such massive support um that's that's really cool that just yeah i mean it's it's that because there is a there's there's a real active you know base to support that that are a part of it and interested in it and yeah it's cool it's really cool i i think what i was trying to say earlier is something kind of like at first glance it just looks like this kinky event but the second you start to dip, dig deeper you realize it's actually this huge like community uh, effort to like preserve a neighborhood and like bring attention and awareness to like the people that live there and who have been fighting to stay there and that was really cool that got me really quickly when i was watching this this um this video um this woman who did like this historical presentation i was not expecting like when she started in the 50s and she was talking about these people who are fighting for their land and fighting for their homes and fighting for and i was like Wow, this took a very different direction. This is not where I thought this conversation was going to start at all. You know, you think of kink and it just thing, seems like 
this fun, silly, like saucy conversation and to start at a place of like, you know, activism and politics. And you're, you're like, oh, yeah, I guess that does make sense. You know? Yeah. Community. Community. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which is super cool. I mean, that is yeah. that is what drives that hundred thousand people is a sense of community. Yeah. And right. so when you see that giant massive flag yeah that comes off the freeway it's yeah. very much a statement that like we are here yeah you know absolutely so, so what do you think people get out of butt plugs <laughs> well i think anal pleasure <laughs> yeah like why that just it's, it, it, it's a plug so it's it's just it's plugging you it's not like well like, okay i don't me... get the plug so okay so like in a man you have a prostate when pressure is applied to the prostate it provides a lot of pleasure like that's why there's jokes about like you know putting your finger in a guy's butt when you're jerking him off because it applies pressure to the prostate and it intensifies the orgasm. So if a man's uh, wearing a butt plug, it actually will intensify your orgasm and it because it's putting uh, pressure on your prostate and as it's enlarging, it's like building. Um, but also some people like enjoy the feeling of like being full. So like 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 some women like like having really big guys have sex with them like really big dicked men have sex with them because they like that feeling of fullness they're like i don't know like that's a turn on and sometimes it's also just like the erotic like tabooness of the butt where they're like oh that's kind of sexy to think of like someone touching my butt or putting something in my butthole because it's supposed to be like a no-no zone and we're doing something kind of hot and naughty with it. So right. those are some reasons people right. okay. yeah, have butt plugs. Think, yeah. <laughs> the whole like, yeah, we would go into West Hollywood. Your mom and here's I. Our regular, yeah. Here's our regular discourse between me and my father, this this yeah. type of thing. Um, so uh, why do people have butt plugs? Well, let me tell you a couple reasons. There, there's plenty like, more. Yeah, we'd go in, but... we'd go in and see like this massive, like big blue butt plug, and <laughs> I just wonder, like, what the hell? Like, what? So, so the prostate that makes total sense. Yeah, it, yeah. It's applying pressure. That's to... why, like, male, like, gay sex feels good for men. Yeah, yeah is because there's actually like a pressure being placed on your prostate. Right, right. When you're having Women, get, women don't get the same pleasure. I mean, they don't have prostate pleasure, but they can, it can still, I think it can still feel good. It's like, um, I mean, there's, there's, I think it can feel good, but I think it's also like the mental aspect of it. Right. And the 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 tabooness, like I think that can add so much to it. Like there's a lot of things that are done in like foreplay or like in sex where it's not necessarily about it being the most like explosive feeling, but it's about that build. 
right? Right. Like, right, there's right. a lot of stuff that's done even in the kink community that's not supposed to make you come. It's just supposed to, like, it's building up that excitement. It's the idea that you're doing something naughty right. or the idea that you're being touched in a way you're not usually touched or it's the lead up to what's coming next. So, and you know, like, some people, maybe it's not as comfortable to have sex, you know, and, and other ways and it's more comfortable. I don't know. There's, like, all different types of... Uh, reasons people yeah. find it hot so many reasons so, so many, many reasons. reasons yeah okay well that was just that was top of mind top of mind. <laughs> <laughs> any last thoughts before we wrap this up well um no that was awesome i learned so much charlie thank you I, I, yeah, we, we didn't get into like many kinks specifically, which I feel like we will do another interview. <laughs> yeah. I'm so fascinated because I'm like, yeah, it just feels like, wow, really? That's so interesting. I know oh, this is more why? kinky history. It's different. Yeah, it's no, the backstory like, like of a, of a community. But I, I would cool. love to have you on for one of our Curious Kink episodes. That's been something I've been very excited about. But just finding the right the right one to do with you is is uh, I'm not quite sure which one is like the best one to. I, I think we decided it's the spaghetti one. Oh, splashing. You want to do food splashing. fetish. Splashing. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, I don't know why. But uh, yes, you sent me a picture. Because you of, said uh, if there's any kink spaghetti. I would want, it's sitting in spaghetti. Didn't you say something? No, like I that? said if I, I said, I think if, if there's like any odd thought of a fetish that's ever popped into my head it was just having sex in a big bowl of spaghetti and, and then i said and, guess what and i laughed and you said well i just sent you a picture <laughs> <laughs> and um, i sure like, wow, did how about that okay how then. about that okay, yeah then. chef boyardee this this is why we have a good back and forth you know absolutely i i maybe have bizarre insight or at least a, a reference point to start at and yeah. Uh, yeah yeah this was awesome honey you did good yeah. job thank you so much for listening in um always appreciated for anybody who is listening to our episodes and if that's you thank you let me just thank my amazing interviewee today, my dear dad. Thank you, dad. And to all of our lovely listeners, you can always follow us on our Instagram at Babes of Valhalla. And you can now check out our uh, merch and our website at babesofvalhalla.com. Very exciting. Um, we're always looking for stories. So if you have an anecdote or a story you would like to share, we now have a place where you can submit one on our website. Or you can email us at babesabouthella at gmail.com. 
We can't wait to hear from you. And until next time, stay nasty. Stay. Hey, stay nasty. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Babes of Valhalla is written and produced by the Babes of Valhalla, otherwise known as your illustrious lieges, Darby and Charlie. Music provided by the musical genius, Gemini Genesis. To all you kinky uh, dogs and cats out there, um, I love you. Nano, nano. Yeah.